0: Welcome to C4 Church Online, equipping you as you follow Jesus. All right. Good morning, everybody. So glad that you're here this morning. I want to say good morning again to all of you watching, listening online in a connect group today. If you're serving and you're watching later, thanks for serving. And all of you in C4 North Durham, again, we would like to say as one family, good morning to you up in the north today. We are in our major series out of First Peter. So if you got your Bible this morning, virtually or physically, could you turn to First Peter chapter 2 as we keep going in this whole idea of living uh, hope. Living hope as we're walking in this, this theme for the year, which is all over the earth and the idea of spreading hope all over the earth. I was reflecting this week on newness. That is, I was thinking about Christmas, of course. Ten weeks ago, I started thinking about it, as you know me. Um, But I was thinking about newness and first-time experiences. Do you remember when you were a child that you got a toy you really wanted, and you got to play play with it the very first time? And it was just that, that moment. There are countless moments in our lives that are those first experiences that you only get to do, of course, once, and then it's lost. It's like you, you, if you've had children, the first time you held your own child, that, that's a new experience. You wanted a puppy your whole life, and the first time you held a puppy or a kitten, or have you ever been to a movie theater, and you really wanted to see a movie, or you didn't want to see the movie, and as you begin to watch it, you realize how unbelievable the movie is. Many of us are going to experience this in the next few weeks. Right, with Star Wars, just want to say that, right? We're ready, we're excited, we're ready. No, but like it's, but you can only do it once, you can watch the movie a hundred times later, but it's that first experience or a song. Where you hear a song for the first time and you're swept up in it. And you're like, I'm going to play this a thousand times. But it's that first moment. It's like a few weeks ago when I heard Adele's new song, Hello. She said, Hello, can you hear me? I'm like, Yes, I can hear you, Adele. Hello. Unbelievable. And so there are moments in our lives good and bad, but there are moments where we have that first-time experience and we actually love it. And what's so profound about those moments is much of the time we spend our lives trying to go back and reliving the first-time experience. And yet, as we are learning in this series, Peter is asking us not to continue to go back to those first-time profound experiences He actually is saying we have to grow up in our salvation and keep moving from what was good and beautiful and all-consuming, the thing we want to play a thousand times over, but we need to keep moving. Why? Because what the whole book of 1 Peter is teaching us, what our theme this year is about, is this, that the best thing is still yet to come. Anyone want to say amen to that? Yeah, the best things yet to come. And what is so profound if you read the scriptures is that the new heavens and the new earth and the resurrection and all that is coming will be like one perpetual new experience that never gets old, never runs out, and is always present because we'll be living in perfection. So Peter says, I want you to keep your eyes forward and I want you to keep your eyes upward because the best is yet to come. Now, Peter has been walking through this conversation with us, through the scriptures that he wrote, dealing with the issue of hope. Remember the original audience. The original audience are people who are being attacked because they are Christians. And Peter, in his old age, is inspiring them to continue to walk in living hope in the middle of suffering. So he began by saying this, we all have not just hope, we as Christians have living hope. Why? Because we do not follow a movement that is based on morality or a set of rules. There is no real monument in our movement because Jesus who lived and then died physically rose again from the dead and is what? Alive. And so we, when we encounter God, we encounter him fully through Jesus because he is God and our hope is living. And Peter said to this community he was writing to and to us and to Christians in every generation, we have a living hope because Jesus is risen from the dead. And since Jesus is risen from the dead, we know that death does not have the final say and we're going to be resurrected just like him. He says, you keep remembering that no matter what happens in your world, no matter what happens in your life, resurrection is the answer to the evil in our world, living hope. And then remember, he said, now I got to continue to unpack this so you can keep walking in your living hope and not turn backwards and go back. So he says, look, I want to continue to remind you. I want to plunge you into the love of God. And Peter spent all these these chapters, chapter 1 and part of chapter 2, outlining all the things that God has done in us and through us and for us because his love never fails and it's real and it's beautiful and he outlines it in depth. So he says, you have a living hope, the love of God is real and you've tasted and seen that the Lord is good if you're a Christian. And then he threw out this card that freaked us a lot, a lot of us out where he said, not only do you have a living hope and not only do you have the love of God, actually in the middle of that, you need to fear God too. Not dread and anxiety, but you must begin to live your life with the understanding that when you die, though you're going to the new heavens and the new earth, God is going to judge you 100% for how you treated people, what you do with your money, your sexuality, your time, God is going to make you give an account as a Christian for how you thought about people, treated people, and how you worshipped. So Peter says you have a living hope, and here's the unbelievable love of God, and oh, by the way, the root of holiness is fearing God, and he mixed all those things together, and then he said, okay, now all that is at least somewhat clear to you, love each other. Because Peter's point was this. You will never, I will never, we will never love each other as Christians unless, number one, we actually believe we have a living hope. Number two, we build our identity and our purpose and our worth in the love of God, not anything else, and we also fear him. When all that happens, suddenly we might just be able to love each other. Now, at the end of last week, if you were with us here or online, Here's the last two things Peter said talking about love. So if you've got your Bible, turn to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. Very important. He said, so dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in this world to abstain from sinful desires that war against your soul. Now remember, he's talking about how we love each other, and he says, dear friends, since you are loved, since you fear God, since you have living hope, and since you also are a resident alien, since you realize that you actually don't fully belong to this world like others do, do not conform any longer to the evil desires you had when you used to not know God when you became a christian and you experienced the love of jesus and the truth about life and when you found out what god says is right and wrong that is the life that you started to abandon at conversion he says let your character and your desires not be molded by your ignorant days and then we ask the question well okay what are sinful desires well there's a whole list of them impure thoughts committing any sexual act forbidden in the bible idolatry, that is worshiping any God except the one found fully through and only through Jesus. Witchcraft, spiritism, occultism, hatred, fighting, jealousy, anger, constant efforts to get best for yourself, complaining and criticizing, malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander, feeling that everyone else is wrong except those in your own little group, wrong doctrine, so that's wrong applying of the scriptures, drunkenness, wild parties, orgies, all that, etc., etc. Peter says, now we are children of the light. Now we are people of holiness. We no longer are allowed to walk in this life, justify this life, or say this is okay anymore because the love of God is better than all of this. And then he says, and oh, by the way, why don't we do this? Well, number one, because we love God. But it's deeper than that. Here's the critical thing. When we participate in that, we begin to erode our living hope. We begin to tear down the love of God. We begin not to truly think that we should fear God. See, one of the great problems even in the church is this. Most people think God's not that holy and we're not that bad and we're wrong. God is that holy and we're in that much trouble and we need to fear him. And so he says very simply, look, don't do this anymore because this will war against your very being. We've experienced on television in the last 48 hours what war does, what war looks like, how deadly and dangerous it is. And Peter, again, not exaggerating, says that is exactly what happens to your spiritual walk when you play with fire. So he says, look, I don't want our communities that are followers of Jesus to participate in this anymore. And then he said, oh, and there's something else critical. If we continue to do these things, then we will threaten the very good news of Jesus we're trying to give others. Remember what he said in verse 12. So live really good, such good lives among non-Christians, pagans, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. He says, okay, everyone be holy, radically different, with sex, money, power, relationships, entertainment, worship. May your life be so holy that when people misunderstand you as a Christian or outright lie about you because they don't like that you're a Christian, when they accuse you of false things, your life and your belief Even under persecution and pressure will turn them wrong. Turn them from haters to wonder and worship because of your life. Here's the lesson. Evangelism, telling people the good news about Jesus Christ, is directly connected to how a church chooses to live. Live such good lives. Now, he has commanded this, and here's his point. He says, the church cannot retreat. The church cannot hide. The church has to live among pagans. So then Peter says, okay, I really want there to be no vacuum in any church that gets this letter, so let me, for you, work out what a godly life looks like as we choose to live among our non-Christian family and friends from every background and worldview. What does holiness look like in every situation? Family, workplace, like what?" does it really look like and feel like? So Peter says, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to tell you how Christians must interact with the government, how Christians must interact in the workplace. He uses the analogy of slaves and masters. He says, I'm going to talk about how you live with each other, husband and wife, even if you're married to a non-Christian and you're a Christian, here's what you're called to do. And then later he's going to talk about, and here's how the church even looks. So we're only going to deal with the government part today. So here's what Peter says. Look, how does our living hope, how does the love of God, how does the fear of God mold us and shape us as we interact with those, everyone ready, who lead our country, lead our province, if you're American, the states, America, you know what you're talking about, or our cities, how does a faithful Christian live a godly, shining example of living hope as we interact with those who lead us through the government? Now, this is an amazing question for us to wrestle through today. See, things are getting more interesting for us as Canadians and as Christians. It's more political, and things are actually getting now a little hostile towards the Christian faith here in Canada in very um, all sorts of uh, ways. We basically live in this. This is what the GTA is. We live in a post-Christian, post-modern, yet very modern at the same time, deeply spiritual, yet very secular, highly multicultural city. So in the middle of all of that, because that just works so well together, right? What do we do as followers of Jesus? Do we retreat? Do we avoid society and non-Christians? Do we set up a monastery system somewhere up in the forest in the Muskokas? Everyone's like, oh, send me the Muskokas, yes. Yeah, but do we, do we retreat? Now, remember who's writing this. Peter was a zealot. Peter was a religious terrorist in his own country. Peter believed that since God was king and the only king, he had the right, under God's rule, to murder Roman occupiers and also kill any Jew that supported the Romans. He believed in violence before he met Jesus as the answer for holiness. Other people said, no, no, let's hide. And then, of course, Peter's writing to an audience that much of them are not Jews or they're mixed or they're living in a Roman world. And so what is it? Well, many people were saying, well, you know, pleasure and pain philosophically is not really real, so just avoid it. Other people were saying, no, no, you should actually get as much pleasure as you can in this life because you've got one shot. Even if you have to break the law, break the rules, do it because pleasure, you got just do it and have fun. So what do we do? Do we retreat? Do we avoid? Do we plunge in? Do we protest? Do we conform? Do we kill? What do we do as followers of Jesus? And remember, here's the conversation. It's all about worship and holiness. Well, Peter comes along and says, actually, they've all got it wrong. (laughs) None of it. Protest, conform, but No. Here's what we are commanded, not suggested, commanded to do as Christians. 1 Peter 2.13 Submit yourself for Jesus' sake to every authority instituted among people, whether to the king as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and commend those who do right. So, Peter says, Remember the context. Your walk with Jesus, holiness, godly living, the church being the church in a dark world, is found in one very difficult, shocking, jarring word. Submit. Submit. What does the word submit mean? Well, here's the basic definition. Submit means to be subject to another person. To subordinate one under another. To order yourself under according to the order of that relationship. Now, I know what's going on in the crowd right now. A lot of you just did this. And a lot more of you didn't do this, but you did this in your head. You're like, don't say that word to me. Don't you dare. I'm a North American. I can vote anyone out that I want. I have rights. Others of you are really nervous because you've grown up in churches where the word submit was used as a weapon. So here's what I'm going to ask everyone to do. North, this is you too. Everyone online. Could everyone in their mind not do this? Could everyone do this? Do we love God in this church, yes or no? Yes. Do we trust him? Then take your arms and say to God at this moment, I'm open to anything you say. Because God actually wants this conversation with all churches. What does submit mean? Does submit mean blind, unchecked conformity, utter submission, unthinking adherence? No, it doesn't mean that. But it does still mean submit. You cannot have your cake and eat it too as a Christian. If you're a Christian, you are going to have to submit to many people you don't agree with. Now, why would you even consider such an un-North American idea? Well, Peter says something quite shocking. For Jesus' sake. As a Christian that believes that we will give an account on Judgment Day for how we treated everyone and how we submitted, actually, this is what Peter says. Because Jesus has asked you to do this, you will do this as an act of worship, not just being a good citizen. Okay, you're saying, okay, John, tell me more. Okay. This is about our holiness. This is about leading people to Jesus. That is, our rights always come second so we can move people from haters to worshipers. But at the core as we're going to see over the next few weeks, and then in the new year, this is a call for us to imitate Jesus. This is how we participate in Jesus's sufferings. See, Jesus submitted to people that were even evil. Jesus, at his own trials, where they were joke trials, was silent. Hold on. Now, Peter comes along and says, one sec. If you're a Christian, you're called to submit, we're called to submit to every authority instituted among people. So every human institution, those that have given legitimate authority, uh, we have to submit to. He gives two examples. Number one, the king. In Peter's day, that's the emperor. And then to governors, those that oversee municipalities or provinces, etc. Now, this is shocking when we begin to understand who's the emperor when Peter's writing. It's Nero. Nero is emperor of the Roman Empire at this moment. Now, if you don't know the story of of Nero, he was truly insane. He was a glutton, he was violent, he was vicious, and he was neurotic at a level that he got so bored that he burnt half of Rome down for fun because he wanted to rebuild it. And as thousands of people were perishing in the flames, people turned on Nero and said, what the heck are you doing? And Nero said, well, I didn't do it. And he's like, who can I blame? Oh, I know what I'll do. I'll start blaming this new little group called the Christians. This is all historically documented. And so he blamed the great fire of Rome on people just like you. And guess what they did to people just like you? They started throwing you to wild animals like lions and tigers, and they ate us alive. And then Nero was so bizarre and so wicked and gross, he dipped some of us in tar, well alive, and then lit us on fire to light his garden parties for fun. And Peter comes along and he says, oh, by the way, we are called to submit even to Nero. Nero. Now, what's shocking, if you start really again working out the Scriptures, Nero is called the first Antichrist by Christians. We are called to submit to the king and to the governors he sends. Now, he says there are two overarching, generalized rules of government. Peter says, number one, they are there to bring the law. Judges, law, jails, if you break the law, right, they carry the sword. The other is to commend those who do good. Here's what Peter's point is, in a general fashion. This is talking about civic order. This is talking about municipal order. And he's saying even Nero's rule is better than anarchy and utter chaos. And he says so, as Christians, we know that anarchy benefits nobody, and we are called to be the best citizens any country or any empire will ever experience. Now, if you are uncomfortable already, if this is getting tighter, guess what? Peter goes this far, Paul goes even farther. Here's what Paul says in Romans 13.1. You can turn over there if you want. Everyone, Christians, must submit himself, herself, to governing authorities, for there is no authority except which, uh uh-oh, God has established. In other words, the God we sang to this morning, the God we gave to this morning, the God we can't wait to meet, he established the idea of government. You're saying that he created the Canadian government? Yes. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently... The person who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do not do right, for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from the fear of one in authority? Great. Then do what is right and He will commend you. For he is God's servant to do good. but if you do wrong, if you break the law, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword for nothing for God for he is God's servant an agent of wrath that bring punishment on wrongdoers therefore it is necessary christian to submit to the authorities not only because of possible punishment but because of conscience don't forget that this is why we pay taxes for the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. So give everyone anything you owe them. If you owe them taxes, listen, you pay your taxes. If you owe them money, you pay them money. If you owe them respect, you give them respect. If you owe them honor, you give them honor. In other words, here's what the scriptures say. Obey the law. As a Christian, remain productive, pay your taxes, stop at red lights, don't steal, don't invade another person's privacy, don't go online and download illegal music. Side note, it's still breaking the Ten Commandments. Don't rob banks, none of it. All of these things are good, and they produce common good that allows a country to be healthy. But notice what both Peter and Paul are saying. Don't miss this this morning. Paul says you don't just do this, Because you like a good, safe country. It's not enough. You don't just do this also because you don't want to go to jail or get sued. See, for Peter and Paul, this is about, ready? Worship. It's your conscience. Worship for Christians is obeying what God has instituted. See, resisting the government is fighting against God's plan and the authority he's given to other people. Even those you totally disagree with. Now, hold on. Some of you are going, "Mm, mm, 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 mm." I can feel it. If we were in America, people would be standing at this moment. Now, some of you are saying, well, when do we get to say no? Well, we do get to say no. Of course, when you read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, there is a great call to submit. There is also a unanimous theme of what we would call biblical civil disobedience. Here's the summary. We obey the government, and we are the best citizens that any country would ever see unless we are commanded to sin by the government. And then we say, not on your life. Let me give you four examples. In the book of Exodus, during the, uh, the slavery moment for 400 and some years of the Israelites, Pharaoh was afraid that too many boys were being born, so he went to the midwives and told them to murder every single little boy that was born. And they said, no, we're pro-life, we will not do that. We will not kill children. We refuse. And if you read the text, it actually says, wildly, they lied to Pharaoh and said they did it, and God blessed them for lying. Work that out later, okay? First thing. Second thing that happened in the book of Daniel, right? The king builds a statue and says this simple statement, all people must worship me, I am God. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Anyone got felt boards in their head right now, if you grew up in church, right? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they refused, they refused. We will not worship anyone but God. Daniel himself was told he could only pray in, to one person, and it wasn't God. He resisted. He prayed anyways. Daniel in the lion's den. Acts chapter 4. Peter, the author of this book, is pulled in front of the Sanhedrin. Remember, it's sort of like the Vatican and the Supreme Court of the Jews mixed together. And they are commanded, Peter and John are commanded never to preach in the name of Jesus again. And they stood up and they said, we will never obey you because we have to give an account to God and your only men. We will not obey. So here's the fundamental idea. We obey unless we're commanded to sin. And when the government tells us we cannot obey God, we kindly, lovingly, with conviction, in humility, say no because God is God and the Bible is the ultimate source for our faith and life and practice and what the world is. And in the end, I know I have to fear God and not fear you because in the end, I give an account to him and you'll be judged with him too. Now, Peter... He's still saying, though, in the middle of all this, catch this, submit. Verse 15. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. See, as we read 1 Peter together, uh, before Christmas and after, Peter commands Christians to do good six times. And here's what Peter says. If we do not do good as Christians, if we talk a big game... But when no one's looking or when people are looking, we're committing all that list of sin. It does not help us at all. Actually, it gives people, organizations, institutions, and governments more reason to slander us and attack us. Now, see the phrase ignorant talk? It's the word slander. Christians have always been slandered since the beginning. By the way, the word Christian, which we bear now and we love, was a slander. Little Christ, ha, ha, ha. Like, that's what it meant. So slander has been with us since the beginning. And by the way, slander is always the first sign of real persecution coming. Right? Now in Peter's day, this is what was being said about Christians. We were called as Christians treasonous. Why? Because though we honored the emperor, we would not worship him as a god. We were treasonous, treacherous. We were called ignorant. Actually, did you know that all Christians were called atheists 2,000 years ago? Because atheism used to be you only believed in one God, not all the gods. So they used to call us atheists. How things have changed. Anyway, because we ignored all the other gods. So we were treacherous, and we were ignorant, and we were atheists. And oh, by the way, here's the famous one. They accused us of doing all these weird things in secret, like killing babies and drinking their blood at Communion. And this was a regular occurrence where people said, oh, you're the baby mur- murderers who do this weird stuff in secret. And then regularly also, we were accused of planning to overthrow the emperor because we had a king named Jesus. There was all sorts of ignorant talk. And Peter says, do you want to counter all that ignorant talk? You live transparent, open, profound lives, and you show them by your life that what they're saying isn't true. Now, by the way, have things changed? No. No. All sorts of those accusations, you can find those all around the world right now against Christians in many countries. Now, in our country, you know how this goes. It doesn't matter how kind or loving or informed you are. You're a bigot, you're homophobic, you're anti-pluralistic, you're prideful, you hate every other religion, you're exclusive, you're hateful, you think that you're better than anyone else, and the list goes on and on and on. But notice what Peter says. False accusation is going to happen no matter what we do. Jesus said, if they hate me, they're going to hate you. But it's how we respond that matters the most. I love when one person said submission to authority is the strongest apologetic against the view that Christians are never up to good. Now of course many things have been done that are really wrong in the name of Jesus. I've talked to so many people, not Christians or former Christians, who have been verbally spat on by Christians. They've been attacked. People have been rude, uneducated, mean, prideful, slow to listen, fast to yell, Christians wasting all this time on, you know, stuff like, I don't know, Starbucks cups, side note, really? I thought the conversation would be for all of us. We're more concerned that the Starbucks image actually is a pagan deity. But anyways, I suppose we missed that one. different sermon. Okay, um, so Starbucks, right, or, or the real things, where people pick at homosexual funerals and say, God hates fags, or people blow up abortion clinics in the name of Jesus. Now, that's all wrong, unbiblical, completely against the ethic of Jesus, Paul, Peter, etc., but it does not, the extremes do not change God's word on any issue. And how we live our lives will demonstrate to those in authority over us that though we may fully disagree with them, we are not against them. As one person wrote, Peter's teaching concerning uh, submission to civil authority, please hear this, is based on one very crucial premise in the Bible. The sovereignty of God. Government is a divinely ordained institution and it exists only by the will of God. Its authority comes from God. It achieves God's purpose even when it fails to carry out its divinely given task. When when God allows governments even to persecute Christians for well-doing rather than praising them, even his purposes will be accomplished Them. See, this was the early church's comfort and it must be ours too. Do you really believe that God's in charge of history? Or do you believe a government is? Because this is very, very significant. And at the heart of this call, Peter is saying, look, live such profound lives that God knows your heart and you will silence the ignorance of people. And then Peter says, oh, by the way, make no misunderstanding of what I'm saying. Verse 16, live as free people. But do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as servants of God. Oh, make no sh- mistake, Christian, you are truly free. Free from guilt, free from sin, free from Satan, free from death. And Jesus truly is our ultimate and full king. And governments will pass away, but the government that is on the, apo- on the shoulders of Jesus will what? Never pass away, so you're free. But you may never use your freedom to sin against the government or anyone else. This idea that is in the church, well, God's my father, and I'm elected, and Jesus covered me, and I have grace, so I can do anything I want because I have fire insurance, is completely unbiblical. Notice what Peter says. You will never have permission to use the freedom that God has given you to go back to the ignorant days that he saved you from. And oh, by the way, live as, can everyone say it loud together up north to What is it? No, that's, we. no, 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 no. Loud, loud, loud. What? Servants. What is servants in Greek? Slave. We have freedom, but we are willing slaves to God. We are slaves to God. So Peter says, okay, here is the very uncomfortable summary for all of us today. Verse 17. Show proper respect to everybody. Love the family of believers, that's the church. Fear God, honor the emperor. Respect every single person you meet. All people, people of different religions, politics, views, moralities, sexualities, treat them all with dignity. Treat them like what? You would like to be treated. Oh, oh, hold on though. Let me just make this clear. When we respect someone and honor someone, that never means that we're justifying or agreeing to what they believe, what they do, or how they act. You know, it's interesting. We've lost the concept of tolerance in the West. Tolerance used to mean I tolerate you, right? Right? That means I will be civil towards you. I will be kind towards you. I will not slander you, though I think you're completely wrong with everything. I'm going to be civil towards you. Now in culture, tolerance means if you do not fully agree to me, you hate me. Do you see the difference? We as Christians are called to real tolerance. We will honor and respect every human being, no matter their background, but we will not affirm what God says no to. And that is the fundamental difference between where our culture is going and what God's word says. And yet we're still commanded by God himself to honor every person you ever meet. Why? Well, let's be reminded, every human being in this room, every human being up north, all of you online, seven billion people on earth, all of us are made in the what? Image of God. When we meet people, we are seeing the thumbprint of God. And so it is critical that we understand that we want every human being made in the image of God to actually meet God through Jesus. Do you know how powerful this statement is, verse 17? We take it for granted now because we have 2,000 years of experience. How life-changing this command was in the middle of ancient Turkey written by a former religious zealot. Peter says, from a slave to Caesar... Every Christian was to honor every human being just for being a human being. Human dignity is directly connected to being made in the image of our creator. Not money, not status, not race, not power, but not background. Now let me just, here's a little side note. Remove God and remove human dignity. So many people think they're so enlightened these days, so wise, so secular. If we just got rid of religion, everything's gonna be okay. Let me just say something. The great gift of Judeo-Christian values to the West is we declared that human beings are more valuable than anything else in creation because we're made in the image of God. Remove God, remove the dignity of a human being. Renew, remove the dignity of a human being, remove the idea that we should value and have civil authority, civic authority to each other. Remove that, become an animal. Become an animal, treat each other like animals. And end up in darkness. We as Christians know, I don't care what anyone, we know that every human being is valuable because they're made in the image of their creator. So Peter says, You respect all people. That's how you silence ignorant talk. And then he says, Oh, by, by the way, there's something more. But you honor everyone, but you love the church exclusively like a bride. You love Christians in a way that makes no sense. You agape is the word from a few weeks ago. You agape the church. You love the fellowship of believers in a way that will demonstrate to the world that a community can be different. And remember what Paul said, love is patient, agape. And it's kind, and it does not envy, and it does not boast, and it's not proud, it's not rude, it's not self-seeking, it's not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs, it does not delight in evil, it rejoices with the truth, it protects, trusts, hopes, and perseveres. Do you see it? Peter says that you live and you honor everyone. You love the church like this and ask God to make us like this. And then he says, by the way, I just need to stop. It's like he almost had a pause in his thought and he said, oh, right, I just gotta say this again. Respect everyone, love the church. Oh, I've gotta bring it up again. Fear God. Fear God because you will not love other Christians and you will not respect anyone and you will absolutely never submit. You will not do it unless you have the fear of God in your life. Let me just read the passage that we read a few weeks ago. 1 Peter 1.17 If you as a Christian invoke God as Father, the one who impartially judges every person's worth, you conduct yourself in fear during your time of exile. Oh yes, God is our father, yes. Oh God, he's actually our Abba, our daddy, our, our king. And the fa- that father term is a name of God, an intimate term. We belong, it's amazing. God's work in our life, amazing. The love of God in our life, amazing. The living hope we have, amazing. But let me just say it again. God will judge us as Christians. God will judge each believer according to the whole scope and character of our life, whether it was inspired by faith, fear, pride, or self-interest. It's not about heaven and hell. It's about stewardship and worship. And let the Scriptures stand on their own authority. God the Father, Peter says, will judge you, me, all of us, indiscriminately, impartially, penetratingly, absolutely, and honestly. And he's going to ask questions like this. Did you respect and honor all people made in my image? Did you love the church more than anything else on the earth? Did you submit to all of those I placed over you? And then he says it in the end, right? Respect all people, right? Love the church, fear God who has loved you first. And then he says, and honor Nero himself honor the king. You know, there's one thing we just can't miss. It's interesting why Peter chose to put fear of God just before honor the king. It wasn't just to help us ethically be reoriented and get a good compass. It's more than that. See, what he's also saying there, which is really subversive and brilliant by Peter, he's actually saying, by the way, you never need to fear Caesar. The only person you need to fear is who? God. Caesar's not God. He says he is. He's not. He's going to die too. And by the way, do not fear him. This is actually an amazing statement of resistance against the idea that people exalt themselves to God. We only fear God because God is the only one worthy of fear. Because all other people have a beginning point and an end point. God does not. And in the end, the only thing that lasts is who? God. Peter says, don't forget, as you honor Nero, totally ignore what he says about himself. It's just not you know, it's been interesting. We have a new prime minister, don't we? And we just had one. Did you honor Stephen Harper? Are you honoring right now our new prime minister, Mr. Trudeau? Do you honor the, pri- the premier of our province? I would say that I've watched very intently over the last 10 weeks our social media feeds. And here's my question. If I can't tell the difference between you and a non-Christian and how you talk politically... How are you going to silence the ignorant talk of people? You know, I have a rule in my, in my own life about politics. You notice I very rarely speak about it from here. You ever notice that? Yeah, it's called wisdom. Um, uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but let me just give you a few thoughts. I will never put a sign on my, on my lawn of who I support. Let me tell you why. Not because I, I have views. You know me. I have views. Uh, here's why. I would never want that to be a barrier for someone to actually come to me and talk about Jesus. I care more about Jesus than a political party. Do you? This has got to be so important. If your social media feed looks just like every other pagan spouting off, we have a holiness problem in the church. How you talk and what you think about those in authority over you directly diminishes or exalts your worship to God himself. It is no different than when you sing with your hands raised. So what does Peter say? Be a good citizen. Why? For the glory of God. Remember, Romans thirteen five by Paul. Therefore, it's necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also because of conscience. See, here's the thing. <laughs> Governments can expect only obedience when people are watching. You know what I'm talking about. Civil obedience only works most of the time, even in the middle class culture, when people are watching. But when people aren't watching, the government truly, if you're talking, they go, yeah, we don't expect people to obey. As Christians, we obey when nobody's looking because we know someone is looking. We don't obey the government because we don't want to go to jail, though we don't want to go to jail. We don't obey the government because we don't want to be sued. Or No, no. We obey the government and the laws of our land because we know that obedience is an act of worship. And we want to demonstrate to police officers and to government officials and everyone else that we are profoundly amazing citizens and we believe that God has changed us and we want to demonstrate our goodness even when no one's looking. Honor and worship are connected. Now, there's a lot to talk about this. You'll do this in your connect groups. I was reading a guy named Scott McKnight, and Scott McKnight did this amazing little project where he summarized another guy's thoughts named Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards is one of the best theologians and philosophers ever produced out of the church in the United States. And over 300 years ago, he had some thoughts, and I want to share them with you today. They're not mine at all. I'm just borrowing from a guy from a guy. So there you go. Okay, he wrote this. Number one, Christians should not hesitate to join with non-Christians in the public square to work towards common moral good, all the time. We should work with the government and anyone else from any other background to deal with poverty, abuse, defend life, and human trafficking. We should work with anyone, because common good is good. Number two, Christians should support their government, but be ready to criticize them when the occasion demands. Yeah, we do need to stand for our faith. Our views of morality, the truth found in the Bible, Jesus. You know what? God has spoken not there is something called absolute truth. It is found in nature and is fully understood through the scriptures and Jesus Christ. Natural law and revealed law have a final say. Not all paths go to heaven. No. Not every thought, word, or action or worldview is okay. No. God has very concrete views on money, sexuality, and power. So, Christian, when you have to speak, not if, when you have to speak and say no, do it in grand humility. Do it in a posture of humility. Here's the second thing we all need to do. Pray. If you really believe you want to change the world, then go into the very place where God hears prayers and he determines the fate of history. Don't spend all your time protesting. Get into a prayer meeting and start praying like you've never prayed before and watch heaven change earth. He says, yeah, you got to stand and say no. you got to pray. And can I just say what Billy Graham used to say? Oh, you can get socially involved as much as you want, and it's good. But guess what? The best thing we can do for the world is tell the world the good news of Jesus Christ. Because if you change a heart, you change a family. Change a family, change a street, change a street, change a neighborhood, a neighborhood, a city, a city, a city, to a second city, to a country, to a world. Like, understand, when we're still saying no to certain things, pray like you've never prayed before, forgive enemies, and tell people the good news of Jesus. This is how we do what we're called to do. Here's the third thing. Christians should remember that politics is actually comparatively unimportant in the long run. In the long run, guess what's going to happen? The world is going to stop, and Jesus is going to come back, and he's going to make all things right. Should we be involved, civically involved? Yes, but just don't forget. If you put all your energy into the now, you're forgetting the not yet that's coming. And here's the last thing that's really critical. Christians should be unbelievably scared, aware of national pride. Let me just say this this morning. There is no Christian nation on earth. There never has been. There never will be. There isn't right now. Was Canada formed on some Christian values and Jewish values? Yes. But this was never a Christian nation. What makes up a Christian? Ethnicity? Background? No. When a person enters the family of God through faith alone, in Jesus alone, by his grace alone. We don't want Christian nations because Christian nations at their core aren't Christian. They're religious. We want people to go into everlasting life and the church is the only place where Christianity truly is found. Make no mistake that when you start looking for Christian nations, you end up always sinning and committing the sin of idolatry. Be aware of national pride. Do I love Canada? Let me tell you something. I do. Do you love Canada? No, I do. You can clap. It's okay. Yeah, I. 40 countries. I've traveled. I've lived overseas. I've seen great poverty. I, I've seen this stuff. I just want to say this. Canada is an unbelievable nation. My daughter got sick this week. I'm in a doctor's office. Within three hours, I have medicine by night. Are you joking me in, my world, in this world? and uh, safety. Listen but I am a citizen of heaven first and Canada second. And if you reverse the two, you'll have a conversation with God on judgment day that you you just don't need to have. Here's the last thing I just want to share and it's critical. And it's really critical. And, And here's where we need to go. The most important thing to share out of this whole message is actually a theme for the next probably four or five messages. And it's actually very uncomfortable. And it's actually not the conversation we want to have as a community. But this is where the scriptures are going, so we're going to have it. So all of us here, is everyone's hand still open in their head? All of you up north? Okay. Here's the major aha moment. Have you caught it yet? The secret to holiness, the secret to fearing God, the secret to loving God, the secret to respecting everyone else and loving the church freely is found in that one word we don't want to talk about. Submission. The whole Christian movement is rooted in the idea of submission. So number one, when we accept Jesus as Savior, we accept him as Savior and what? Say it loud. Lord. So every time we don't submit to the Lordship of Christ, we no longer end up being free. We, many of us in this church, have not submitted to the love of God. You're like, what? I thought submission was such a dirty thing. No. All the stuff that Peter's talked about, the call of the Father, the work of the Son, the presence of the Spirit, all this stuff, so many of us in this church still refuse to build our worth and our identity and our value in God's love. And so when we don't submit to God's love, we submit to ourselves or other voices and we end up not being what? Free. Submission to Christ Submission to the love of God and submission to the fear of God. And oh, here it is. And submission to every authority God has placed over us. Simply put, and I'm not saying this for dramatic pastoral effect. I mean this with all authority and sincerity. I believe that Jesus Christ, the Lord of this church, the head of C4, is choosing in this season to begin a conversation, a new conversation about the lack of submission found in this church. Now hear this right. Hear this with open ears and open hands. In very small and large ways, just like Jesus came in the book of Revelation and spoke to churches and said, I love this and I don't like this, Jesus wants to free this church, that means us as people, from the grip of insubordination and rebellion and raising our rights higher than holiness. And he wants to do it actually in this church, in our lives, in our workplaces, and in our families. Let me just put it simply like this. Lack of submission always leads to bondage and freedom. No freedom. Submission leads to freedom. And I believe that the lack of submission found in the way many of us deal with the government, And those who actually are over us, and we all have people over us, actually is a shadow between us and God, us and each other, and actually even those we're called to reach. We live in a culture where our rights define us. But as Christians, we now live in and under the kingdom, the reign and rule of God, where our rights always come second to God's love, to the fear of God, and to those that He has placed over us. And so the invitation, and it is an invitation, the invitation is for us to simply say to God, if this is a shadow that is over me or our church, come now, we willingly invite Jesus to start undoing a lack of submission from our church so we can have joy, be free, silence the ignorant talk of people in house and out there, and... Begin to walk in holiness. This is one of the most threatening messages I'll ever preach, probably, to a North American crowd. Because we hold our rights as God-given. And they're not. Submission is God-given. Jesus himself, within the Trinity, is the ultimate demonstration of this. So we sing songs like, Lord, I want to know you and be like you. And we pray prayers here regularly, sincerely. Lord, bring revival. Well, if you read revival history, here's one of the things rarely talked about, but in every single account. Submission starts happening everywhere because people really start imitating Christ. So let's just see what the Lord does. Would you pray with me, Lord? Jesus, uh, so much to think about, work through, and understand. And so just simply, Lord, we ask that you would begin to walk through our politics our fear, our pain, our history, the misuse of this word, misunderstanding of this word, and actually, in a lot of us, our outright rebellion against the idea. And simply, look, I, I just Lord, may your love outstrip and may your love shine. Like, may your love and who you are taste so good that submission is just obvious and beautiful and we want it. Lord, we pray for revival in C4 Church. And we pray it no matter the cost. In the name of God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. We pray this together and everyone said. Thanks for joining us. To connect to the ministries of C4, visit c4church.com.